0: I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers about their books. academic calling Imogen Hermes Gower. Three things to know about Imogen Hermes Gower's The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. A merchant, a mermaid, and a madam. On a September night in 1785, Jonah Hancock's most trusted ship's captain returns from a trip to the Far East without cargo, without fortune, and without Jonah's ship. Tyso Jones sold all in exchange for a mermaid, small, brown, and wizened, and also dead, Jonah thinks he is ruined. But soon, gossip spreads from the London docks to fellow counting houses and opulent parlors. Jonah Hancock has a mermaid, a curiosity, and all of London is willing to pay to see it. The reserved Jonah finds himself moving from the city's underbelly to the finest drawing rooms of high society. At one of Mother Chapel's parties, he makes the acquaintance of the coquettish Angelica Neal. The most desirable woman he has ever laid eyes on and a shrewd courtesan of great accomplishment. This meeting sparks a liaison that steers both their lives onto a dangerous new course as they come to realize that priceless things often come at the greatest cost. It was my great pleasure to meet Imogen when she was in our office over the summer and talk with her about The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, a debut novel I think is masterful for its immersion into Georgian London and for making us look at a variety of things as curiously and inquisitively as possible. Imogen Hermes Gower's The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock is on sale September eleventh in hardcover and ebook from Harper and in digital audio from Harper Audio. Today we have with us in the office Imogen Hermes Gower, author of The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. Imogen, thank you so much for joining us. It is an absolute pleasure to meet you. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, So I will lay all my cards on the table. I absolutely adore this book so much, (laughs) love and adore. Um, And it's so very smart. And one of the things that I really love about it is how um, it is set in Georgian London and you really create a wonderful whole world and whole experience of what Georgian London is like. So first to start us off, can you talk a little bit about your research process and what it was like to sort of do the work of building and creating that world and that atmosphere.
1: Okay, so when I first started writing the book, I knew quite a lot about the 1780s already Mm -hmm. because I was just interested in it as a historical period. I'd read around it. I never thought that I would write fiction about it. It was something that I felt comfortable with, um, which I think did help when I came to research. So once I decided, yes, okay, I'm writing this book, I had like 20,000 words of like the bones down Then I stopped writing completely, and I just I spent nearly a year just researching, Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that was reading. So I was in the British Library, like after work, you can get like any book ever brought to your table. That was great. Just like (laughs) bring me this, the only copy in the world, and they just bring it to you. Um, So I did loads and loads of reading. Um, I guess I kind of approached it like I would have approached an essay at university Mm -hmm. that I made loads and loads and loads and loads of notes. I wrote down everything verbatim that I thought was useful and the way that I used to write essays was like leave the other page blank for my own thoughts, the Mm -hmm. facing page. Um, So a lot of reading, a lot of some academic stuff and then also texts from the period Mm -hmm. as well, especially with an eye to... um, Like particular turns of phrase, I had like a little phrase book and I'd always write down words and phrases that kind of spoke to me and that that was very useful in kind of like just then sewing it through the dialogue. Um, Yeah, because
0: it it does, it reads very contemporary to the time period in which you've set the novel. Like there are so many things from turns of phrase, so the phrase phrase book is super interesting to me. Um, uh, From the phrase book um, to thinking about other things like... um, like the Harris list of Covent Garden ladies, yeah. like that was in my that was in my head that the Wellcome Library has, um, and even something like Hogarth's Harlot's Progress mm-hmm. um, with the with the wrapper that's in the in the painting, uh, the wrapping the the curl wrapper yeah. that, that's used um, was an interesting little twist, and it was, it was those things that I think if you're a fan of 18th century literature those little nods and little accuracies are things that I think are are really delightful and really super great.
1: I think that's important it's like understanding the texture of a period. So I think it was good that I researched a lot before starting to write because then you're just immersed in the world. I think when you're researching historical fiction it's very easy to kind of info dump or be like oh, I want to get my interesting fact in <laughs> or have like some weird dialogue where it's like of course until 1782 there was a window here said Mrs. Jones but then the window tucks came in and we had to take them all out. Like, nobody talks like yeah, that. Yeah. Like, that's not important even for the reader to know. Yeah. If you really want them to know it, you need to work it in, in like, a way that feels n- humanly natural. Mm-hmm. And I think having done, like, groundwork research for so long and, like, I, you know, would walk London and go to places and see objects, a lot of object research... Wow. It helped me when I started writing to just feel comfortable in the period and like I already know the answers of how do people move around this space and how do people speak and um, I guess what's their, you know, what's the landscape of London like, It, it that, that helped rather than feeling like I was floating in a little void. Yeah, and the, the cityscape
0: was something that really super interested me too. When I used to teach I taught a class on seeing and writing the city, so mm-hmm. thinking about landscapes and thinking about buildings and architecture and stuff like that and one of the things that I thought was really great is that you're at times super specific about what street we're on and then directionally how we get or how a crow will fly mm-hmm. to a different a different area, a different neighborhood. Um, and you can look even at a contemporary map of, of London and sort of figure out spatially where you are. So would you say that maybe the mermaid and Mrs. Hancock to some extent is also kind of a love letter to the cityscape of Georgian London?
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that. I think I just always found in London and I guess nearly any city that I go to, I, I feel very conscious of the history of it. Mm-hmm. And when I first moved to London, I acclimatized myself to it by trying to walk around it. I I guess I do the same in New York. That it's really easy to get on the tube or the subway and get off at a stop and be like, I'm in Soho and not really know how it connects to the next area. That mm-hmm. a lot of the information that ended up going into the Mermaid and Mrs Hancock was some was like my own inquiry and exploring anyway of how do you walk from here to here? Like I was really bothered for ages by in Samuel Pepys's diary mm-hmm. he always writes like walked to Deptford and it's like how did you walk to Deptford? Like <laughs> did you get were there bridges? Which yeah. way did you go? And it took me. I was just, so when I had, I understood that Mr. Hancock in the novel, he lives in Deptford mm-hmm. and he must walk into London. Mm-hmm. I was tearing my hair out as to what, what route he would have taken into London. Mm-hmm. And I ended up figuring out, I was like cycling along through Borough to like um, London Bridge. And I was like, this is how he'd do it on the cycle path no um, it was that was a weird thing of like just figuring out how i guess your psychogeography of a city is different from someone in the past mm-hmm. like what is the focal point of this city or i suppose in georgian london you're so focused on the river mm-hmm. and it's like the center of london it's where everything is happening it's also something you have to navigate like yes. you have to cross it back and forth mm-hmm. there is nothing that will go underneath it or there are a few bridges that go over it. it's like so focal to how you think about London and I think nowadays we don't think about the river at all mm-hmm. like it's we like breeze over it yeah. or the tube goes under it or the yeah. buses go alongside it you know it's not that felt important trying to recalibrate what I understood about London to how it might have been understood in the past and I, I loved
0: that it does have at its moments a very sort of fanase like Quality mm-hmm. to sort of seeing what we're seeing, and there's also, of course, a, a different kind of idea when we think about street walking. When we think about Angelica Neal. <laughs> yeah, and Mrs. Chappell.
1: yeah. I think, yeah, maybe that crossover between street walking and street walking, yeah. street walking and walking in the street. Yeah. I don't know. It's, like, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I definitely feel very flaneurzy about London, mm-hmm. and probably most cities that I go to. Like when you're walking in the streets, you see something different from any other way of travelling around it you you notice things that you wouldn't have otherwise so a lot of the time it was kind of my mission to like, I needed to obviously go to Dean Street in Soho which is where Angelica Neal lives and it kind of felt important to be like oh, where does the light hit it at certain times of day mm-hmm. that kind of thing, like how wide and narrow does it feel, like there are things you notice when you're there that you couldn't just from looking at a map mm-hmm. and that, that felt important to have that yeah, it's like almost archaeology of like, mm-hmm. okay, so this is this is my landmark here. This road must have gone like this. Here's the river, so therefore, mm-hmm. this this must be the thing. But see, like George in London, you're kind of spoiled with that because a lot of it is quite unchanged. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, in London's history, that's recent. You know, even if the buildings aren't there, the footprint of the roads is still the same. It, it's like yeah, when you're looking at something like pre Fire of London, it's so magical when, which is 1660s, like it, it, when you find things that are part of that old London. I've mm-hmm. got a friend who um, has been writing a novel set um, before the Fire of London, it's for the assassination. Uh, some people, some men attempted to assassinate Oliver Cromwell, mm-hmm. and it's about, you know, the story of these people. And there are almost no buildings left because they all burnt down. Mm -hmm. And having to... That kind of... Working out that geography when there is so little left is like, oh my God, just... I don't know if I could. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a huge... that
0: That is a huge undertaking. Yeah, that's... And now I'm super want to know when your friends book be yeah, coming I know. out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know that too. But... So one of the things that you touched on a little bit ago is thinking about the transactional nature of the climate in which Mr. Hancock operates. Mm-hmm. And it's a very sort of common thing if you think about eighteenth century England. We're sort of nearing the heights of industry, nearing the heights of empire. Proper industry, there's legitimate industry mm-hmm. in the novel. And then There's another kind of industry. There is maybe illegitimate industry if we think about um, the work and labor of Mrs. Chappell um, and her girls and Angelica Neal um, as they are prostitute sex workers. Do you have a particular term
1: Um. you care for? I prefer sex workers because I think they have a degree of agency. Well, you know, not all of them, but...
0: Right, but Angelica
1: certainly, certainly,
0: certainly does. And she is a character, I really enjoyed her for a lot of reasons. I thought her voice was very unique. She very much leaps out of the page with life and frustration and humor Mm -hmm. and, and all of those wonderful things. And she is a very interesting woman to me in thinking about how she approaches her work because she has a very keen sense of her worth Mm -hmm. and her agency, as you just said. And one of the things that you talk about in the novel, you say, "'Horedom appeals to Angelica's character in a great host of ways. "'She likes to live closely with other women and share share her secrets with them. "'She likes to sing and drink and dance. "'She likes to be cosseted. "'She likes to be looked at. "'What she likes best of all is to be desired.'" But then also that she has discovered that secret other role of commerce in which she is at least as powerful as they, meaning the men. And all of this provokes in her the most exquisite excitement. What was it like for you to write characters like Angelica Neal and like Mrs. Chappell?
1: Um, I think Angelica kind of came to me quite fully formed. That I always knew what she was like, who mm-hmm. she was. And I don't know, she just kind of walked straight in. Um, I suppose I've been reading about eighteenth century like women quite like her for a long time, and I was really interested in them and and, and middle class women and their experiences of i suppose living outside of feminism mm-hmm. and biographies of women and even memoirs where they really rationalize say their choice to be a courtesan or a madam or a sex worker that mm-hmm. they It's not necessarily an empowered choice because they have very few others available to them, but it doesn't mean that it can be dismissed. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they're entirely helpless victims. They're doing the best with the situation that they have. I think what you're saying about, um, you know, legitimate industry is kind of interesting because I don't think that for women there is any kind of legitimate industry during the period. Mm -hmm. That, like, if you are, say, you run a shop or you... Sell oranges at a the theatre or something. Mm-hmm. You are taking part in a transaction. Mm-hmm. You are giving. You are obliging someone in exchange for their money, and you are taking part in a public face. Mm-hmm. And all of those things for a woman to do, like immediately, l- makes her less respectable mm-hmm. and kind of is like one step away from prostitution. So as much as like you know things like millinery, which was a um, a profession that was really associated with women mm-hmm. and it's definitely is also you know is associated with prostitution mm-hmm. by extension, like that there is a real connection there, but it 's also just the suspicion that if you 're a woman doing work, something's wrong, yeah, like why are you supporting yourself where's mm-hmm. your husband? That mistrust of women in industry is something that really helped me understand where these women were coming from as well, so I know that mary robinson 's mother um she was uh, she ended up becoming an actress and she was the mistress of the prince of wales for a while but her own mother they'd been abandoned by her father and um i did actually steal this for angelica actually <laughs> um uh, her mother to support the children set up a school um to you know get money so she could pay for herself and her children because mm-hmm. the father had absconded and was not giving them any money When he came home, he was, like, shocked and appalled that she had put his name on this school so everyone could see that he wasn't paying for his family's upkeep, Mm -hmm. that she had brought shame on her husband by broadcasting the fact that he wasn't paying for her. Like, she should have quietly sat down and starved to death rather than tell people that she had a bad husband. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't have a choice about... You know, if work... If honest work makes you look bad... And you aren't trained in a profession you know you don't have the possibility of like apprenticing somewhere then sex work is really the only thing you have to fall back on either yeah. you know hopefully you do a different kind of sex work which is you get married and that's the transaction which was understood during this period that you your husband will keep you safe mm-hmm. in exchange for attention and affection and sex like that mm-hmm. that's how it works if you're not lucky enough to do that what else do you have And there's even
0: that sort of judgment that's passed down between women on marriage, on the subject Mm. of marriage in this book, thinking about sort of when Belle announces um, to Angelica that she is going to get married. And there is sort of this scandal, I guess, between the the two women about Belle's decision enter into that particular kind of of whoredom, I think Mm. is what she calls it. Yeah. To me, that's super interesting, the question of what is able to count and be accepted as Women's work or not, or seen as women's work, is, is yeah. a question that has been s- occupying my brain for a very <laughs> long time. Maybe in different historical circumstances, but for me, it's it's very striking to see how that thread doesn't change, and those questions and those problems really don't change and haven't changed to some to some extent. Mm. So I think even in the twenty first century. But for me, it was a really super interesting part of your novel, seeing these debates going on between between the women, but also thinking about what happens in interactions and transactions between men and women mm-hmm. in, this, in this book and this novel. And I guess I would be remiss, I, maybe maybe right now, if I did not also mention the moment of really kind of, I think, stark and contrasting violence in the mm-hmm. book with Mrs. Chapwell. Yeah. My boss isn't here, but she very much, like, she still thinks about that moment. Um, it, it's one that definitely, I think, stands out for its brutality, but also for thinking about the hypocrisy mm-hmm. in that moment that exists. So can you talk a little bit about that scene and about why it was important to make Mrs. Chapel's come down? This is a spoiler. So if you're listening and it's a spoiler, stop until you get to that <laughs> pause and then come back to us when you, when you get to that point. But thinking about her sort of her come down... Why make that contrast I guess so so stark and and so brutal in a way but also sort of the extended brutality beyond the physicality but also Mm -hmm. the the sense of of shame I guess that is really that is really brought down upon her.
1: It just felt like you can't play in that period and then turn your face away from like these things that really happened so Mrs. Chappell ends up Dying mm-hmm. after being pilloried for her crimes of running a house of ill repute, mm-hmm. and it's a case of mob violence um she was not the first she there were real boards who died this way after having a period in the pillory, like one of them was blinded and later died. Mother Needham, who is actually in harlot's progress mm-hmm. um she died this way as well um that was a lot earlier in the seventeen thirties and there are quite a few accounts of quite just the brutal punishment of prostitutes and madams which it was not unheard of in the 18th century and that suspicion and aggression towards particularly these madams who are older women often portrayed as really unattractive and coarse they took the brunt of it and it was felt that this was reasonable. I think Mrs Chappell she's not a thoroughly likable character I really enjoyed writing her I definitely enjoyed... There is this trope of a madam which I really actually enjoyed going along with the particular 18th century trope of what a madam is. But the more that I wrote her, the more attached to her I became and the more I kind of respected her choices. Like, mm-hmm. she she is very self-serving. She is taking advantage of young girls. Mm-hmm. She's not a good person, but I could kind of understand maybe why she was doing it. And I, I just think people like her died that way and it would be incredibly like glib to not show that mm-hmm. and also i think however much you disagree with her you have to disagree with that more like whatever she's doing nobody no human deserves the treatment that she received N- yeah. no animal either yeah. and that that felt important i think to it was like the hardest scene in the book to write like it was i like, you know had to keep getting up and walking around it was really really tough and it's a tough scene
0: to read I think too I mean like you said whether you agree with what she chooses to do and how she chooses to earn a living the attack on her but just the for me I don't even know if it was so much the physical brutality Mm. even though that was quite awful but it was the idea that this woman should be so shamed Mm -hmm. by men who were not strangers to to what she did and to who she
1: was or to the establishments that she runs I think it's that thing of like I've experienced that feeling of that if a woman is transgressing or being a thing that she should, or or if anyone is, if anyone is very notably moving out of the acceptable behaviour for someone like them, there is this kind of visceral anger or annoyance about putting her back in her place Mm -hmm. or taking her all the way down, like, of wanting to break that person. Mm -hmm. And I think that rage that existed towards madams like her, I, I just that kind of made sense to me as like you want to break this person mm-hmm. you want them to not be pleased with themselves not doing well you want to see them as debased as possible mm-hmm. it felt important for that to happen to her i mean you know on a, on a fiction level not as a
0: as not a person. The, the person yeah but it's not it's not all grim
1: one of the other things that
0: i really super loved about your novel is how very funny it is, mm-hmm. um, and I think to a certain extent, my enjoyment of the humor reminded me a lot of what I like in medieval literature with the, mm-hmm. the Fabio tradition. The the bodiness. Um, there are some great and fantastic scenes <laughs> in in this on both of those accounts. Um, whether it's sort of laugh out loud humor, subtle humor, the unicorn. Showing up or not showing up, you know, or not being seen as far as Kent or something like that. <laughs> so whether it's whether it's that, or whether it's the scene when um, Mr. Hancock goes to Mrs. Chapel's house and and um, sees you know his mermaid uh, displayed, and also sees other things that he really does not want to see at all, <laughs> that make him run away. But it's just such a funny and rich and body story at times and so was that was that just super fun to do really? yeah
1: definitely that was I think that was like the thing that got me through it yeah. uh, <laughs> like, I don't think I think like that because the research is so was so much fun mm-hmm. like I think the Georgians definitely used humor in ways that maybe we don't so much now to communicate serious things mm-hmm. and to spruce up their dialogue and like so much of the like original you know, contemporary stuff that I was reading has these, like, completely gratuitous little vignettes in it that, like, they're very Georgian. Just so mm-hmm. there was one that I read about... um a, It was a it was a court transcript. It was real people describing the events of a night where a young sex worker taking a guy home. In court, he's claiming he didn't even know this was what she was. He just thought they were, like, going to go to sleep. Um He wakes up and she's, like, stolen his trousers and his watch and all his money. Um so he like fumbles down the stairs in the dark and like goes to the first door that he finds which is where the landlady and her husband are like sitting up in bed reading or something. <laughs> and he walks in in just his shirt with no trousers on and the land the you know the landlord turns to his wife and is like what kind of place are you running Anne and it's like that's irrelevant to like the court case but somehow this picture needed to be painted of like a middle-aged couple sitting in bed and some like farcical thing stumbling on them like and i i just think that they had an eye for that kind of thing like mm-hmm. that their satire is you know that all of their visual stuff is very full of tiny details and things that you pick out here and there it felt important to echo that writing the book
0: and i think you totally nailed it because i have read this book I think two and a half times Um, by now. (laughs) When I started it the other day in preparation for sitting down and talking with you today, there are all kinds of things that I like circled and just didn't get the first time like even on the title page the (laughs) use of the word history a history in three volumes and I was like how did I not know that but like how did I totally miss that before because then it then it spiraled into my head is well that's super interesting that the word history was used and not novel and why history and all these other things that no one probably cares about or maybe five people care about (laughs) but (laughs) but it was just it's super rich in its detail and I and I think that's what makes it so engrossing, so captivating, and just, at, and just at times really so much fun to read. So I think Good. that all of that work totally, from my point of view anyway, totally paid off for the astute reader that I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that I also really liked is what I would consider sort of the novel's overall point of view mm-hmm. to me is a very curatorial one. There are lots of words about... that describe things that are being looked at or how things are being looked at. So curiosity, spectacle, rarity, I wrote them all down. We will not go through all of them. (laughs) But I was mapping these words the first time, actually, that I read the book. I got to, I think, maybe 10 pages from the end, and I don't remember what sentence it was, but I think it contained the word spectacle. And I was like, gee, I wonder how many different words for looking at things are there. And I was like, I really wish I would have thought of this Four hundred and some pages again. So then I got finished and then I was like, all right, I'm going to just start all over again. And I did. Oh, wow. And, I, and so then I started tracking those words. And it's really interesting how all of the characters in their way seem to participate in this narrative structure and narrative way of speaking about things as we're going to look at this with a lot, whatever this is, whether it's another person, whether it's the, the collection of mermaids whether it's just a social custom or whatever it is, we're going to examine this with such curiosity and such just genuine interest that to me, I think that's one of the most amazing parts out of a collection of many amazing things about this book is how everything is treated as a curiosity and everything is treated with with genuine curiousness. Mm. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why creating sort of that idea of, of looking at things, the importance of looking at things and being curious about things and how you sort of look at them and question them. Why was that so important to you?
1: I suppose I come from a very visual and object deep background. Mm-hmm. That's a start that in my discipline, the way you access history does not have to be through words. Mm-hmm. That Like, I, I wouldn't privilege a written source. Like, I want to look at objects and pictures and understand the details in those what what are they saying and maybe things that words wouldn't necessarily note at all, that's part of it I think also I was really interested in terms of mermaids and curiosities, how much of the world you will never see with your own eyes that in the 1780s so much of, like that. there's so much of a striving for learning and knowledge to discover things and yet you're very very kind of constrained by the fact that sea travel is dangerous and takes a long time like you can't get on a plane you can't google something i was really struck by when captain cook came back from his first voyage so this would be about 1761 he came sorry 1771 he came back with um like the flayed hide of a kangaroo Mm -hmm. so it was not a live animal um, he gave it to George Stubbs, who was, like, you know, top animal painter of the day and was, like, stuff it or inflate it or something and paint a picture mm-hmm. um, and will tell you, like, you know, what it looked like. Um, so this picture of a kangaroo, which becomes, like, the archetype kangaroo picture for, like, 100 years in Britain and, you know, everywhere encyclopedias are sold, is like, based on a... It's a painting by a man who never saw it alive, who has seen it stuffed, who is basing the landscape on what he's been verbally told by the people who were there and how this creature stood. It's all, like, just been told to him. He's never seen it. Then everyone who sees that painting has to believe this is what a kangaroo is like. You have to trust that. Mm -hmm. So when things like a mermaid turns up and you have this cultural knowledge of mermaids going back hundreds of years, you understand mermaids maybe exist, you have a picture in your head of how maybe they look, you're not looking at the object and thinking there are stitches on it or, like, it has glass eyes or there's sawdust in it. Like, that doesn't mean it's a fake. Mm-hmm. Like, what, I suppose, like, how do you inspect things for their veracity when, like, you you take so much on trust? Mm-hmm. I think it's also a period where people are really trying to construct themselves visually. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you wearing? What does it say about you? What kind of house are you living in? Like, And, I suppose, taste being such a class-based thing that it's not like now when you can go to Ikea and choose the thing you like like the furniture you have it's the furniture you have and if you're from like a wonderful upper class background then you've been to Europe and done your grand tour and seen all the tasteful things and you have this knowledge you know you can come back and build your house properly and it says something about you mm-hmm. most people don't have that option and that, that idea of learning and self-construction and self-display being all part of a kind of social privilege that people want to belong to like Mm -hmm. how do you present yourself to the world that that really interested me especially in a time when you know people are like on the make there's the industrial revolution happening and empire and people are making fortunes and you know daring to marry into the aristocracy because they have all this money like how do they construct themselves It's such a visual world. It has to be because you you don't have any other way of conveying who you are. I've been thinking about
0: that for quite
1: quite (laughs) some time. The last question, and it's
0: a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Um, Since this is primarily geared to educators, faculty members, and their students, who is your favorite teacher?
1: Ooh, ever in my life. I think Mr. Kelstone. It was my English teacher Mm -hmm. in secondary school, probably when I was about 13, and he used to make us. So our school was very much about the um, curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's like, you read the set texts, you write all your essays, you get a great mark at the end like it's very rigid so we were doing all of this stuff like this is a set text or oh, we've got to do 12th night we've got to do far from the Madden crowd got to do some keats and some ted hughes and it was just like piling up and piling up and we got to the end of the year you had to put everything in a folder and he was like "Yep, yeah, you don't need that i say that i say that i say thomas hardy is not on the curriculum like we just did that because i thought you should read like some thomas hardy like um he was not a personable person he was like very impatient quite angry a lot of the time but he was a great teacher and he made us read things for, because he thought that we should have read them rather than because we had to get an A for it Mm -hmm. and I I've never forgotten that he was he was a really great teacher, he also really encouraged me to write creatively in that when I was bad, which I sometimes was, Mm -hmm. you'd have to have like some kind of punishment homework set and he would always set me write an imaginative piece and it was like such it was he it wasn't a punishment and he knew it wasn't a punishment but um that was great that was that was nice that he made me write. that was good that's really awesome yeah it was good Imogen thank you so much for joining us oh thank you thank you for having me this was great